God's presence, God's people, God's purpose, God's plan. These have always been the essential ingredients of the church. We find a recording of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. That letter was the first of a two-part work, the second being the Book of Acts. In this letter, Luke recalls Jesus' ascension and commission, the spread of the Gospels, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the early church. In the past, God's presence was with His people in one place at one time. But early on in Acts, Pentecost occurs and God's promised Holy Spirit is unleashed in power, filling those who would receive and overflowing to those around them. With this new Holy Spirit power, the church began to explode, stirring among thousands as the message grew and spread. The mission of the church has been made clear by Jesus himself. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, more than 2,000 years later, God's presence is still being unleashed among God's people, and we are part of God's continued purpose and God's continued plan as the Holy Spirit moves in and through us. Well, it is a great weekend to be together, and I'm so glad that you're with us here in the room. Those of you with us at our Skagit campus in Belize, those of you online, so grateful that you're with us today. Uh, it's a big weekend. Yesterday was Juneteenth, which is now a, an official holiday. It's a, a great thing to celebrate and remember from our history. Today is Father's Day, so we celebrate and want to say Happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Not only that, but today is the summer solstice. Longest day of the year, and uh, also the first day of summer, and all of that leads up to really what we all celebrate. Tomorrow starts Amazon Prime Days. And, uh, but the great thing is that we get to be together to worship Jesus, to look into his word, to be transformed, to lift him up, and I am so grateful and glad that you're here, a part of this, as we continue on in this series, this unleashed and unhindered and unstoppable series. As I was thinking about the title of this series, and, and we'll get to the scripture here in a minute, so hang with me. I was thinking about, out of Greek mythology, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Greek mythology, but in Greek mythology, uh, one of the, the uh, characters is a, a lady named Pandora. And Pandora, when she was created, all of the lesser gods uh, from Zeus and what, um, they all gave her a gift. So she had all of these gifts. But she also had this box, and you know the story in that, if the box is open, out would come all of this just unthinkable evil and chaos and destruction. If you ever, another Greek uh, mythology, if you ever saw the movie, The Clash of the Titans, there's a, a scene where, um, where a man, I can't remember what his character was, but he comes to Zeus and he says, it is time for the mortals to pay. And then Zeus says, release the Kraken. I just wanted to say it that way. <laughs> and he wasn't talking about a hockey team in Seattle, by the way. But it says, release the Kraken. And so with these two things, I was thinking about with Pandora's box and the release of the Kraken, that it would unleash and it would unhinder and this unstoppable evil and destruction and chaos in the world. But what we're talking about is the antithesis. It's the exact opposite. Because there's this beautiful lady called the church who's been given all of these gifts with this incredible opportunity to open it up and not release destruction and chaos, but good and redemption and, and righteousness in the kingdom of God. And, and, and the Father releases the Spirit and the church of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit then becomes unleashed, unhindered, and unstoppable. 
And the cool thing is, we get to be a part of that story. We're studying the book of Acts, where you see the history of the church, these 30 years from the time that Jesus ascended to the, he- to the Father, and for the next 30 years, and what happened. And it's the history of the church, but not just the history of the church, it's his story of the church, and that story continues to be written. That story is still being lived out, and we are a part of that story. We get to be a chapter in that story that started those years, and we're a part of this church that is unleashed and unhindered and unstoppable in the power of the Holy Spirit. And before we get too much farther into it, I want to give you just a little synopsis of the chapter of this story that we get to be a part of here at Cornwall Church. I'll give you a little bit of his story here. See, this thing called Cornwall Church that we're a part of is 115 years old. In 1906, there was a little, a little Sunday school that was started in Bell Creek up on the Mount Vicar Highway here in Walking County. And from that, it grew to a group of people who loved God, who, who were committed to his word, who wanted to see other people brought into the kingdom of God. Fast forward about eight, 80 years. That's when I come into the into this story as well. And at that point, there's still this heart for God and for his word to be the people of of God, this distinctive people who make a difference and bring the kingdom to bear on this world. And in the 80s, there was uh, this heart, this willingness to make some changes to see even more people be a part of the kingdom. So we went to multiple services. There were multiple times that that would allow more people to do that. And in the the 90s, it was not just multiple services— but, and this was a big shift. There were multiple styles of worship where we changed some worship and we did away with some things. And then we went to multiple days, Saturday and Sunday, and it got to the one point where we were doing two Saturday night services, three Sunday morning services, and then Sunday afternoon, I just died every week, but then was resurrected again. And, and, and so all of that happened. And, and it was just with this heart to be a part of God's story, this unstoppable story of the kingdom of God coming to bear in our world. And then... In 2012, fast forward a few years uh, later, in 2012, there was this this desire to, um, there was a group of people that had been driving up to Whatcom County from Skagit uh, Valley, and and they said, could you do something here? And so we started our Skagit campus in, in, uh, in the valley in 2012, and it's been going great. And then about five years ago, in 2016, we said, let's experiment with this whole concept of online church, of, of, of streaming our services live. And we were, our church was a part of a beta test group for this, I don't even know, I, this is beyond my pay grade, the technical stuff, the software, what have you, to be a part of this online streaming deal. And so we were trying that starting in 2016. And then March of 2020, it was no longer an experience, it was a necessity. Because we went 100% online. And we we're so grateful that we were already up to speed on that. And it was frustrating, and we felt like this is a, such a setback, and it was difficult. And I didn't like preaching to an empty box in here every single week. But to, to kind of requote scripture, what COVID meant for evil, God meant for good. Because our, 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 community, Shara, our communications director told me this week, because of this whole thing of going online, we now have people from 46 states and 15 countries that attend Cornwall Church online. I mean, it's amazing. So now we're not just one church in two locations. Now we're one church with three campuses. There's a Bellingham campus, and then there's the Skagit campus, and then there's this online campus. And the reality is more of you attend Cornwall online than attend in any of our buildings. And as we begin to think about that, we begin to pray, begin to discuss how is it that we can leverage that for kingdom impact to make a greater experience to take it to the next level. And for those of you online, that, and, and some of 
you need to know, some people call Cornwall Church their home. They've never been to one of our campuses, and they never will, and some of them never could because of their location. But location is no longer a limitation. It's unstoppable. It's unhinged. Praise God for that. So we thought, how can we take the online campus to the next, next level? So in engagement, in experience, in caring for you, and, and the connection. And since it's a campus, we decided probably the next step is we ought to have a pastor designated for our online campus. So I want to let you know that starting in two weeks, those of you who attend Cornwall Church online, you have a pastor. You may say, who is it? Well, you've already, some of you already know him. Uh, he's a part of our church. Uh, he's been on this platform many times. Pastor Brian, our Skagit Valley uh, campus pastor, is now taking on this new role of online uh, online campus and community life pastor. So he's your new pastor starting in two weeks, uh, which is exciting uh, for him and for us. And uh, some people, I, I'm getting, are you, you guys getting a pop on this deal? No, you're not hearing that? Okay. But some of you might be saying, well, okay, so then what about our, our Skagit campus? What about them? Well, we're also excited because uh, Pastor Scott, who's been our next-gen pastor, is excited to step into the interim role of the campus pastor there, and we get to see this story, our chapter that we get to be a part of, continue unleashed, unhindered, and unstoppable, all to the glory of God. So that's a, that's a cool thing. I wanted to give you an update on that. Excited for those of you. Thank you so much for those of you who are uh, with us online, not just visiting, but a part of our church there. All right, so we're in this book of Acts. Let's go back to where this whole thing started. Little recap from last week in Acts chapter 1. It says, on one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Just wait. Wait for this gift, the gift that my Father has promised. If he said it, we believe it. You are a promise keeper. Your word will never fail. He's promised it. We know it's going to happen. He's going to give us this gift, which you have heard me speak about. This is all review. John 14, 15, and 16, Last Supper, Jesus tells them five times about this gift that's coming, that, that the Father's going to give. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, while we're focusing on the Holy Spirit, this sermon is not necessarily completely about the Holy Spirit. But I do want to take a few minutes to talk about that. If you want more about the Holy Spirit, I did an entire series on the Holy Spirit in uh, March and April of 2015. Not that I remember these things, but I went back and checked. If you want to uh, engage in that teaching, you can go on, our, on the website and go back in the archives. You can watch it or listen to it, a thing on the Holy Spirit. But let's talk just for, for a minute about the Holy Spirit. Here's a quiz. Um, for those of you online, you can type in your answer. For in the room, you can speak it here. If you were raised in like church world, when people talk about the Holy Spirit, there's often a symbol, a picture, uh, a picture that represents the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of an animal. What is that animal? Dove. Good. And it's rightfully so, because when Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water and it says that the Spirit descended on him as a dove. So that's where we get that picture. And it's accurate. But I thought it should have been a parakeet. <laughs> Don't groan yet. This isn't a dad joke. Maybe. Because the Greek word for the Holy Spirit is paraclete. And it would have been a whole lot easier to remember, kind of like, like you're playing soccer or rugby or football, a paraclete. A paraclete, the paraclete, this Holy Spirit, 
The paraclete is this one who is the counselor. He's the comforter. He's the, the helper. He's the one that comes alongside. He's the spirit of truth that guides us into all truth, that reminds us. He's the one that convicts us of sins and comforts us in difficult times. He's the one that brings about his fruit to transform us from the inside out and gives us gifts to impact the, the kingdom of God and the community. And he gives us the power to live the life we are called and created to live. This is the Holy Spirit. And while there's a whole lot more we could talk about, let's be very clear about this gift the Holy Spirit, that it is a who, not a what. Because so often we talk about the Holy Spirit and we refer to it. It's a who, not a what. It's not some, some impersonal cosmic power force, may the force be with you kind of energy field like that. When Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit, look how personally he refers to the, the third person of the Trinity. He said, Jesus said, but when he, not it, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. This is the third person of the the Trinity, a who that will be a gift from the Father. And Jesus says, just wait. Just wait. And so they wait. They wait for this gift. They wait in Jerusalem. They're waiting for, G, for, for the Father to send this gift. Right, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, Jesus said to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And then Jesus floated away. And they're all standing there. And then they wait. And they go back, and they gather together. And one day goes by, two days go by, three days go by. Somewhere in there, they appoint Matthias as the, 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 the replacement for Judas. We're not even going to talk about that. That's the rest of chapter 1. Four days go by. Five days go by. Six days go by. They're gathering in the temples. They're praying together. They're worshiping God. They're wondering, how long do we have to wait? Is it days, weeks, months? This has been six days. And they go, oh, but tomorrow's the seventh day. Seventh is like the perfect number. It's the completion. Of course, it's going to be tomorrow. You can imagine on the seventh day, they're probably thinking, this is the day that we get the gift. Seventh day, eighth day. What happened? Wait, wait. Ninth day goes by. Ten days go by. They've been waiting. They don't leave Jerusalem. They gather together. They're praying. They're worshiping. They're in the temples. They're going through all of the stuff that the Jewish people do, and they're waiting for this gift. And that's where we pick up today. Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bible or your tablet, your phone, you want to follow along. Acts chapter 2. And what we're going to see is that the promise, the, the, the gift that was promised from the Father, the promise is fulfilled. What we'll also see is that there are other promises that are fulfilled. And there's incredible t- uh, ties back to the Old Testament that happens in the first part of Acts chapter 2. So are you ready? Let's do it. Acts chapter 2, 1 says... When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. We'll talk about this later. Was it the Solomon's portico and, and, and the porch up there? We'll get to that later. But when the day of Pentecost came. Now, for some of you, this word Pentecost comes on the screen, and there's an involuntary reaction within you. Some of you get excited. Some of you get curious. And some of you get nervous. Because the word Pentecost is the root word to Pentecostal. And some of you are saying, come on, Bob. We need some Pentecostal preaching. Some hellfire and brimstone. We need some spit and some sweat. We need to have face masks on so we don't get it. We need you to preach to us the Holy Ghost fire preaching. (laughs) Not going to happen. But some of you are like, oh, we're that close. Some of you are really curious. You say, well, this church doesn't strike me as a Pentecostal church, but I'm wondering how he's going to handle this. We'll see. 
And some of you get real nervous, probably because of an experience you've had or something you've heard or seen, and you're like, man, if they start trying to make me fall over or run around or dance, I'm out. I am out. Okay. For the disciples, when they heard the word Pentecost, none of that even crossed their mind. None of it. For them, Pentecost was a festival that their people had been celebrating for 1,600 years. It was one of the feasts. It was one of the feasts where it was required that people would come to Jerusalem. It was also called the Feast of Weeks, that there was a a week of weeks, which means seven, seven weeks, seven times seven, 49. And on the 50th day, pent five, like pentagon or pentagram, on the 50th day, there would be this festival, the festival of the harvest. This is 50 days after the Passover. And they've been doing this for 1,600 years as a people. So the disciples aren't worried about anything. They're just saying, we're going to go to Jerusalem. We do this every year. This is the celebration of the harvest. And later, it would commemorate God giving his people the law. When God comes down onto Mount Sinai and there's smoke and there's fire and there's wind and there's earthquakes and God gives the law, gives the tablets, gives the law, they're commemorating that. Here's a cool little side note, I think. On the very day that they remember and celebrate that God gave to them the law, God chooses that day, that celebration, to not give them a law again, but to give them the Spirit. That it's a new day. There's a new wine. There's a new power. There's a new way. There's a new life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So they're in Jerusalem. And because Pentecost happens in late May or early June... The weather is much better. More people come to Jerusalem for Pentecost than any other. It's bigger than Passover. This is their their Super Bowl festival. Jerusalem is jam-packed with people from all over. So they're there. I mean, they're all in Jerusalem. The, The place is absolutely packed. And it's at that point on the day of Pentecost where God says, release the paraclete. Release the spirit. All right, let's move on. Suddenly... A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. There's this, this sound, this roar, this rushing wind sound, and, and, and it's not wind. I mean, we, we picture curtains flying and papers everywhere. No, no, no. It was a sound. It, it wasn't wind, but when you're trying to describe something you've never experienced before, you tie it to something that it's like. Okay, it wasn't a wind, but it, it's, it was like, kind of sounded like a wind, like, a, like this, it's hard to explain. It had to be there. But, but it was like this, this wind that's going on there and, and all this. And they're trying to explain it. But this rushing wind, this violent, this sound comes through. And I think it's a beautiful thing that they choose that as their word picture. There's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament. It's called ruach. You have to do that. Uh, it's, it's, that's why face coverings are good when you speak in Hebrew. Ruach. And in the New Testament, it's pneuma with a P, like you would have a pneumatic tool or pneumonia. Ruach and pneuma is a Hebrew and a Greek word, same word, but it means breath, wind, and spirit. And when this ruach, this pneuma comes, this breath, this wind, this spirit, it animates, it energizes, it it gives life. Uh, Let me give you an example. In Genesis, 
the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Makes a little action figure out of mud. It's great. Here's this little guy, a little Adam guy. But there's, you know, it's kind of fun to look at, but there's not a whole lot going on until he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. That breath made all the difference. Until then, it's just a stick figure, mud figure. But then he's animated, he's energized, he's brought to life by this breath. I, I know that, that we try to stay out of Ezekiel because it's a freaky place to be. But in Ezekiel, he's in this valley of, of these, these dry bones, and this is what it says. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. Here are all these bones scattered around. They're just all these bones. But he says this breath will animate this. This breath will energize. This breath will bring life. And a little side note on this. What happened in Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones is exactly what happens, and maybe it's even pointing to what happens on the day of Pentecost. God had given them the law. It was a framework. It was a structure. It was important bones to have, but it was not life. And then God gives the Spirit, breathes in the pneuma, the paraclete, and it comes to life. There was a time when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, trying to explain things of the, of, of the spiritual realm. And he says to him in John chapter 3, the wind blows wherever it pleases. This is what we sang this morning. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And John records that after Jesus came back uh, from the dead, that he meets with his disciples, and he does this thing. I learned this word. Some of you are like, well, of course, we all know this word. The word is insufflation, insufflation. And it was what happens in John chapter 20. And with that, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So, here they are. They've been waiting for 10 days. It's now 50 days after Passover. It's the Pentecost day. They celebrate, and there's, they're in this room, and there's a sound of this violent wind that comes in, this ruach, this, this pneuma, this wind. And they're not even sure how to explain it, how to describe it, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on and says this. They saw what seemed to be Tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, it, it seemed like, again, they're experiencing something they've never seen, experienced before. They're trying to find a way to ex- describe it. it. It wasn't fire, but it was like fire, but it, it seemed like fire, but it, we weren't hot. And, just, and, and it wasn't lightning flash, and it wasn't just like a pillar of fire. It was just like this fire comes, and it separates these flames. Uh, it's hard to explain. You had to be there. But they come down, and they're on each, each one of us, all of us. So here they are in this room and this wind sound and this fire thing. And some of you are thinking, I know what you're thinking right now. That was the beginning of earth, wind, and fire. <laughs> was it on the 21st of September? Okay, never mind. All right. Shining star for you to see what your life can truly be. All right, never mind. Okay. So what, what was I talking about? Oh, the fire, the fire. So it seems like these tongues of fire come down on each of them, which again is a very, very cool thing because throughout the pages of the Old Testament, Fire represents the presence of God. When God, in uh, Genesis 15, God cuts a covenant with Abraham. We don't have time to go on this, but he cuts all the animals in half. He puts them. When God cuts a covenant with, with Abraham, he passes, God passes through in the form of a smoking pot and a flaming torch. This flame, the presence of God. Moses sees a bush, and it's unlike any bush he's ever seen before. And it's got the very presence of God in it. This bush is 
on fire, but it doesn't get consumed. It isn't burned up. But it's the fire, it's the presence of God. When, the, when he delivers the people into the wilderness, God is with them and he directs them. A, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It's the presence of God. When, they, when he goes up onto to the Mount Sinai to get the law, it says that there was smoke and there was wind and there was earthquakes and God came down in fire. And when they set up the tabernacle, when, God's, when they were completely done, it was set up, God's presence comes and there's smoke and there's cloud and there's the fire. It's his presence. It always represents his presence. When Ezekiel, he says, I saw God, there was, there was this wind storm, and then there was this fire, and God was in the fire. How about when Elijah goes, Elijah didn't die. How cool is that? He goes back to heaven, and there's this chariot and these horses of fire, and then he's caught up in the whirlwind, and you see it over and over again. It's the very presence of God, and now it comes down, and it's not just a pillar in one place. It's not just God's presence at the temple. It's not just on one person. It comes and it goes to everyone, men, women, young and old, the 12 and all the rest, everyone. It's equal. It's access to everyone as the presence of God comes upon them. And this had been predicted. Three years earlier, John the Baptist said these words. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So here they are in this room. There's this sound, this violent wind sound, and this fire-like things come down upon them. And, And all of this is going on. And in the midst of all that, God sends the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now again, you say a line like, speak in other tongues. Some of you are like, come on, let's bring it. Let's go. And some of you are like, whoa, whoa, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I didn't know, okay. All right. Let me just say this about speaking in tongues. Probably in our lifetime, the whole matter of speaking in tongues has been more controversial, more confusing more disagreed upon, more discussed more, probably more divisive in some ways, has brought about frustration, confusion, has brought about guilt and pride. Some groups way overemphasize it. Some groups completely neglect it. There have been people who've written volumes and volumes. There have been conferences about it. There have been councils brought together. People have prayed and fast. There's all of this that's been going on for years. I want to clear that all up in about two minutes. I was joking. You all, all thought, wow, okay, cool. <laughs> Let me just say this. The speaking in tongues that we see in Acts chapter 2 is not the same speaking in tongues we read about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Uh, and we'll, I'll show you in a minute why, that, why I say that. But they're not the same thing. They're not. What they do have in common, however, is that they were spirit-enabled. That the Holy Spirit is one that enabled them to do these things. And the reason I say that is because I have some very dear friends who are raised in some very Pentecostal and charismatic uh, movements who talk about some of the abuses of tongues when they were growing up. A friend of mine who was in a very, very charismatic family said, this friend said, I learned to fake speaking in tongues because my mom would not let us go to bed at night in family devotions until we all spoke in tongues. I learned to fake it. That's not spirit enabled. 
There are others that would say, I can teach anybody to speak in tongues. And I'm not making light of this, but there are these phrases. See my tie, untie my tie, retie my bow tie. See my tie, untie my tie, retie my bow tie. Just say that enough times, you're speaking in tongues. Come on. Barack Obama, he'd come in a Honda. I mean, whatever it might be. Can I just, we can disagree on this and still be the family of God. But let me tell you where I land on this deal with the gift of tongues in a, in a synopsis, real quick. Because this, this sermon is not about the gift of tongues. I believe that the gift of tongues, speaking in tongues, is a valid gift of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have that gift, and some of that, it's a very beautiful thing. I do not believe that speaking in tongues is the primary or exclusive evidence of a filling of the Holy Spirit. I do not believe that, and the Bible does not teach that. I do not believe that every Christian has the gift of speaking in tongues. I personally do not. I do not believe that people who have the gift of tongues are somehow on a superior level of spirituality. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his writing, spends more time correcting the abuses of the use of, this, of the gift of tongues. And if the first, church, first century church could get it so wrong, isn't it possible that we could probably get it wrong too? He spends more time correcting, and he says, listen, it's a lesser gift. I want you to pursue something far greater. Because if you speak with the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, you're just a clanging gong and a resounding cymbal. You're making a lot of noise but not doing it. You're annoying everybody. And I will say this, and this one's just me personally. If you want to go to someone to learn how to speak in tongues, to teach you how to speak in tongues, I would just very, very much caution you against that. It was as the Spirit enabled them. All right, this isn't a, a, a sermon on tongues, but I did want to kind of give you... Now, again... Not all of you agree with me on that. That's okay. We can still, we can still worship together. Let's go on to verse 5. It says this. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Remember, day of Pentecost, they're coming from all over the place. When they, it wasn't just the, the, the 120 disciples. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. This is why I say what you hear about in Acts chapter 2 is not the same of what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. They're not hearing some language that no one knows what it is, some spirit realm language. There's not a need for an interpretation of this word. These are known languages. People are hearing it in their own language that they know and they understand. So it's a different kind of speaking in tongues. It's known language. It's, but what's amazing is that they're all hearing it in their own language kind of at the same time, and it's a little bit bewildering to them. And not only the phenomena, which is ex the experience is, is crazy but cool, there's also another part that they are utterly amazed. They ask, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? They're not even from our region. They've never even been, they don't know our language. And this is kind of a slam a little bit. They're Galileans. Maybe not the most educated. They don't know our language. Okay, if you can speak more than three languages, you are called a polygot. Polyglot. That's what, polyglot. If you can speak three languages, you are trilingual. If you can speak two languages, you're bilingual. If you can only speak one language, they call you an American. Okay? We just think, well, that's the universal language of the world, right? They're kind of saying, hey, like, these guys are from, from Galilee. Like, they don't know our languages, and, and, and yet they're doing that. And, and here's a question. How do they know they're Galileans? 
Well, because apparently Galileans had kind of an accent. I mean, we have accents in the United States. If you're from the Northeast, you don't know, get your cockies or whatever. If you're from Minnesota, you know, you, and if you're from the South, you, you know, the only ones that speak right are those on the West Coast. I mean, no one says, you've got a real West Coast accent. We don't have, the, we, anyway. But apparently, the Galileans had a bit of an accent. Because remember, when Jesus is, is uh, arrested and, and, and um, Simon Peter goes to Pilate's uh, courtyard and, and the little girl says to him in Matthew, it says, you're a Galilean, I can tell by your accent. In one of the commentaries I read, it was believed that the Galileans had kind of a, kind of a lazy accent. They weren't very, they, they didn't articulate their words very clearly. They were kind of lazy. Now listen, I don't want to pick on any group of our, of our country, but there are certain accents, when you hear it, it just doesn't bring about this thought of they must have been valedictorian. It just, it just seems lazy. It, it, seems, it seems sloppy. If, if I were to say, I'm going to give me some of them taters. Now, what I've said is, I'm going to get myself some potatoes, but I'm going to give me some of them taters. It just kind of, it's, it's lazy. It's kind of sloppy. It kind of makes me feel like, okay, he's not probably that educated, you know, kind of whatever. And maybe that was kind of the Galilean accent. But they're speaking in these other languages. And maybe, rightfully so. I mean, Galilee wasn't the center of, of intellectual, you know, what, pro, proclivity. But, and, and, and maybe Simon Peter was worst of all. In fact, you know, we go to Israel all the time. There was a recent archaeological discovery of a skull, and they're 90-some percent sure this is the skull of Simon Peter. <laughs> okay, that was a joke. I thought that was funny. <laughs> oh, get me some of them taters. <laughs> yeah, like, like Mater from Cars. All right, let, let's go on. Let's get back to Scripture. Okay. Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? We're, we're hearing them in our own language. H- how can this be? And remember, they're from all over. And they're hearing them in their own, their own language. I want to take us down one little rabbit trail. Can I? I'm going to. It's a, it's a little rabbit trail. It starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation, though. I, I will say this. In Genesis chapter 11, there's one language. And the people are really filled with themselves. Self-glorification. There's a great deal of pride. There, there's a rebellion against God. And they decide, let's show how great we are. Let's, let's build a tower. Tower of Babel. And God sees their pride, their self-glorification, uh, their rebellion... And he says, I'm going I'm to bring a curse upon them. And the curse is, there's going to be many languages. And they will go spread everywhere. It's this curse. That there's all these different languages. So then they, they spread out. Now, in Isaiah and Zechariah and throughout the prophets, there's this prophecy that there will be a day when all the nations and all the languages will worship God together. That, that, that this curse won't be the case anymore. And here on the day of Pentecost, you have all of these different languages, and as we'll see in a minute, they are hearing the wonders of God, and what happens on the day of Pentecost is that God begins to reverse the curse of Genesis chapter 11, and then in Revelation chapter 7, when John is standing before the throne of God, he sees the fulfillment of the reverse of the curse when it says every, every nation, every people, every tribe, every language is standing around the throne worshiping. It's the reverse of the curse. Such a cool thing that happens. And so, so here they are. All right, so who are the people that are there? There's 
Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, which will become important later, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. These are all different regions, different countries, different languages, all happening, and they're all hearing the wonders of God being proclaimed. Let me just kind of give you a representation on a map. This is the Mediterranean, you know, clear over here in Italy, to Rome, and over here in, the, in, the, uh, in Africa, and in, in Turkey, and in, uh, Asia Minor, and, and throughout uh, Arabia, all these places. They've all descended on Jerusalem, all speaking different languages, and now they're all hearing it in their own language. The cool thing about this is it's this little glimpse, this little picture, not just the fulfillment of the promise that the Holy Spirit would come, but of another promise that the gospel is for all nations, that the gospel is not just for Israel. The good news and the grace of God, his spirit is not just for the Jews. And isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 28? Go and make disciples of all nations, not just Israel, all nations. Isn't that what Jesus said to them in Acts 1.8? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. And it's a promise of a fulfillment, the fulfillment of a promise that was made clear back in Genesis 18. When God says about Abraham, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Now listen, the Jews in Jerusalem, the disciples, they won't really start to figure all this out for a while. It won't be until Cornelius in chapter 10, seven years later. For us, it's only five weeks from now. Okay, seven years later, Cornelius receives the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on from there with Paul and his journeys all throughout. They wouldn't fully understand this, and it wouldn't be solidified until Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. But it's this good news that the Holy Spirit and God's kingdom and his goodness and his grace is not just for the Jews. It's for everybody. What a story. Here they are waiting on the day of Pentecost. There's a sound of a violent wind. There's these things like tongues of fire. They begin to tell the wonders of God in all these different languages. Is that not an amazing story? I mean, it's a little bit perplexing too. It's like, what? And it kind of leaves you thinking, what does all this mean? If right now you're amazed or perplexed or asking, what does this mean? You are not alone. Verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? which is where we're gonna stop in the story, but I want us to ask this question, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Because the question on something like the book of Acts, and I've had people ask me this, do you think the book of Acts is descriptive or prescriptive? Is it just describing something that happened or is it showing us how things happen? Is it descriptive? Yes. Is it prescriptive? Yes. The answer is yes. There are some things that it just describes and says, this happened, not going to happen again. It's like saying, God parted the Red Sea. That's a description of what happened. doesn't mean you go out to the bay and say, come on, let's try this again. All right, it, it happened. But there are parts where it's like, and this is what God does and is doing, and we can learn from it. So I want to land on that of what does it mean for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. 
that the Holy Spirit isn't just in the tabernacle, doesn't just dwell in the Holy of Holies. Now God's people, it, we are his temple. You are his temple. You are the Holy of Holies where the Holy Spirit dwells right within. And some of you say, well, I, 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 I know I'm a Christian, but I don't know if that's the case. I mean, I, I didn't speak in tongues, and I guess I need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Or whatever. Let, let me just clarify one thing. From the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there was one baptism, but there's ongoing filling. One baptism. Anytime the Bible talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it always points to Acts chapter 2. That was when God released the Spirit. That happened. So, uh, the promise that was um, prophesied in Joel, we'll look at that next week, that John the Baptist talked about, Jesus said, it's a, that's a one-time baptism. It happened. The Holy Spirit's here. But the filling is an ongoing thing that we do throughout our lives. A little bit next week, so these guys, these Galileans who are, who are speaking in all these other languages, some people say, and they're all drunk. We'll talk about that next week. But Paul takes that concept, and he writes this in Ephesians. He says, do not get drunk on wine, but which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, this word, be filled with the Spirit, is a present tense active. A, a better translation of that would, would actually be, be being filled. Because the breath isn't a one-time deal. The wind, the spirit, is this be being filled. You say, well, okay, well, how do I be being filled? Well, in that passage in the upper room, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he says, listen, you love me, then obey me. John 15, he says over and over again, remain in me, and I will remain in you. Remain in me, and my word will remain in you. Remain, remain, remain in my presence. Love me, obey me. In Galatians, it says, keep in step with the Spirit. In Ephesians, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In Thessalonians, it says, be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's this ongoing way that we live our lives of this breathing in the spirit of being filled, of keeping in step and not, not resisting him and listening to the still small voice and following his convictions and living in his power. When he, he writes, those who live by the spirit will not gratify the deeds of the sinful nature. And the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. This is in Galatians. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, uh, factions, envy and drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, but, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there's no law see Romans says this you however are not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the spirit if indeed the spirit of God lives in you and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ they do not belong to Christ if you have surrendered your life to Jesus if you have received his forgiveness and his grace and his salvation he puts his spirit within you you say well I didn't have this big you know speaking in tongues and fire and all that stuff can I just say I wrote this down so I wouldn't get it wrong this is my hope and our, my prayer for us is that we would not be chasing a euphoric, sensational experience of the Holy Spirit. Rather, we would pursue a surrendered, obedient life in the Holy Spirit 
by the Holy Spirit. Let me read that again. Because so often we, we want the, the big supernatural, the, the big show, the big flash. That we would not be chasing a euphoric, sensational experience of the Holy Spirit. Rather, pursuing a surrendered, obedient life in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And then, if the Holy Spirit decides he wants to do something sensational, supernatural, out of this world, amazing, we are open vessels ready for that. So my challenge to you is this. That this week, that you would just keep in step with the Spirit daily, just saying, I want to stay in step with the Spirit. I want to hear your still small voice. I want to walk in obedience. I want to remain in you. I don't want to grieve your Spirit. Transform me. Create your, your, your fruit right within me. I'm open to be used by you, filled by you, being filled, like breathing in again 